1: Rapidly coming to a point of decision. I say we, I use that term generally. Volodymyr Zelensky is rapidly coming to a point of decision. You know, when he was elected president, it was a remarkable event. Who would have ever expected an entertainer? like that, to become president of the nation. Well, there have been some actors before who have been presidents, have there? Yes. But since the war has begun, he has had many options. The, The Ukraine has had many options, from surrender to fight. He has made the decision to stay in Kiev. I think that's the right decision for him and for the Ukraine, and he has led heroically. But as each day passes, And as troops then close in upon Kiev, he comes to a point of decision. Will he stay? Or will he not retreat, but find a place of safety to guard the succession of the Ukrainian presidency? He will come to a point where he has to choose one way or the other. He must make a choice. And I pray that God will give him the wisdom to do the right thing the one right thing. Because when you come down to the point and the stakes are raised to that level, you must make sure that you make the what? The one right decision. Many choices, but one right decision. You know, that happened back in the third century in 249. Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage, was faced with the same kind of decision. When persecution under Decian was throwing leaders like him into prison and putting them to death. And he chose not to stay in Carthage. He chose to move to a place of safety so that he could continue to lead the church in exile, which was probably the right decision, even though he was criticized for doing so by some of the members of his own church after the persecution. He was not a coward. He had just reason to make that one right decision we know he wasn't a coward because later, nine years later, in 258 A.D., under, the, under Valerian, he did stay, he was captured, and he was put to death. The point is, as we move through life, we may have many options. We, have may, we may have many choices about doing certain things related to our health, safety, and welfare. But the older we get, those options and those choices are narrow. And for each one of us, there usually comes a point where we have to make a decision one way or the other. And we pray that we make the one right decision. When we talk about defending the gospel, one of the questions that comes up often, and one of the challenges that comes up, is there can't be only one right way. Is there only one way? And the question is asked different ways. Sometimes it's the religious question. Is Christianity the true religion? Sometimes it is the theological question. Are the teachings of Christianity the only true ones? Sometimes it is the philosophical question. Does Christianity offer the pathway, the only pathway to true knowledge? Often it's the practical question. And that is, does Christianity itself Is it the only philosophy, theology, religion that can meet my everyday needs? Well, you know, our response, my response to those questions is no. We're not exclusive in that respect. What I mean by that is there are other religions, there are other philosophies that contain some truth. So Christianity and the gospel and the message that we preach, as exclusive as it is, does not contain all the truth exclusively so that nobody else has any of it. That's not what we're saying. Christianity does not have a monopoly on knowledge or the truth. But we know this. All truth and all true knowledge originates with whom? With God. All truth from the beginning of time to today originates with God if it's genuine truth. And all truth in any other religion must be compatible with God's Word, and it must be consistent with the gospel for it to be genuinely true. The central question really isn't a religious one, a theological one, a philosophical one, or a a practical one, I believe. The real question is a personal question, and it focuses on on the person of Jesus Christ. And when we ask the question, is there only one way— we really mean this. We mean, is Jesus the only true way? That's really what we mean. That's the question that is debated in apologetics. And our response would be this, I would hope, that Jesus Christ is the only way. Christianity is the only religion that is based on faith in the uniqueness of a singular person, and it is Jesus Christ. Jesus said this of himself. He said, true faith ultimately focuses on fill in the blank. True faith ultimately focuses on what? On me, on myself, on Jesus Christ. You see, it's not a focus on a philosophic ideology that we talk about, ultimately. It's not on the performance of works, as in some religions, and it's not about social programs. Now, all of those things are included in the gospel, but the focus isn't on those things. Our response, of the, our response then is when the people ask us, is Jesus the only true way? It is clearly yes. The narrow meaning of that is that only Jesus, only Jesus, we believe, provides salvation. In a broader sense in a much more inclusive sense, only Jesus answers all of the questions that really matter in life, ultimate concerns. So when we give our defense, when someone asks us to be ready to give our defense, that is a a reasoned argument for the evidence of the hope that we have in us, our hope, even though it includes theology and philosophic concepts, and social programs, and all of those things. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about, is there only one way, it focuses on Him. You know, there's some non-Christian challenges to that statement. You know, the most popular is, well, the all-pathways challenge. And that is, all religions have value, and ultimately, all religions lead to God. The problem with that, of course, is that each major religion has mutually exclusive claims that contradict each other. They cannot all logically be true. Only one can be true. And the agnostic response to that, interestingly enough, is probably not very far off the mark. They say, you know, there's really no way to gauge in an objective way which of those is actually, the certain right way. You can't do it scientifically. You might try to do it rationally, but you can't prove right here and now in the scientific test tube which one is objectively correct. David Hume put it this way. He said, the truth claims of all of these religions essentially cancel each other out. So if you put them all out there and you just look at them logically and rationally, they indeed do cancel each other out. So that argument that all pathways lead to God is clearly and logically incorrect. The relativist challenge is, of course, and you know this well because we've said it a half dozen times over the past month, the relativist challenge of post-modernity is that there is no ultimate truth. There is no meta-narrative. There is no ultimate objective truth. The materialist challenge, which is used by most atheists and agnostics, is really one of indifference. It's one of indifference and hopelessness. You see, they would say there is no God, of course. All there is is matter. There is no metaphysical truth. There's no truth beyond the physical. There is no benevolent God that sustains everything. So the question is really a moot point. It's an indifferent point. In his book, River of Eden... Richard Dawkins, as I said about two weeks ago, put it this way. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but, and then here's the phrase, pitiless indifference. So the atheist and the agnostics, apart from wanting to debate with Christians about this, consider it in a different matter there's the character challenge that comes to this question and it focuses on the person of Jesus Christ there are those that object to our statement that Jesus Christ is the only way because they would say like bertrand russell that in fact his character is questionable his ministry doubtful and his moral teachings were not necessarily all practical and consistent and Russell would say something like this There have been plenty of religious leaders that have lived in the past who have lived equally exemplary lives. And so he would challenge the character of Jesus Christ. And then we come to those within the ranks of Christianity, which we might call liberal theologians, who then would say, Yes, Christ is unique. Yes, he is an one of a kind, but They would not do so in the fullest New Testament sense of the word. They would say that, yes, he was a good man. He was a good teacher. He was an excellent moral example, but he was not God and human flesh who then sacrificially died so that we might have our sins forgiven. They would say that he's not now resurrected Lord who is glorified bodily at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and who is over all of creation. In other words, he set a good example, but we're on our own to apply his teachings and to transform society. So there are many challenges to our argument that Jesus is the only way. My question is this, a lot of times people want to say, well, there can't be just one way. There've got to be many ways. My question is, why is it that way? You know, in the everyday mundane operations of life, we make choices every day that are exclusive. (laughs) You pull up to a stoplight, you make a choice whether to obey that red light or to run it. One-way street, whether to go down the right way or not. You pull up to the gas pump with great fear and trepidation and you have to make a decision. Do I put diesel in or gas? And if you make the wrong decision, you ruin your engine. Every day, we obey the law of gravity. I am not going to jump off this platform and defy it today. We make, in in everyday decisions, very mundane choices that are clearly exclusive choices. My question is this, then why do people resist when it comes to the matters that are of ultimate consequence in our life? Why do people refuse to make a decision about ultimate matters? You know, this isn't just a matter of the scientific approach to things or the rational approach to things of modernism. It's not just a matter for the postmodernists to say everything is relativistic. No, folks, this is a matter of human nature. It's been this way since the beginning of time. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given a choice. They could be obedient or disobedient, and they chose exclusively between the two, and they chose to be disobedient. They chose the wrong way and not the right way. They desired to be like God. They desired to know all things. They desired to know the difference between good and evil and they found out. This goes back to the Garden of Eden. The root problems of it really have to do with things really not about reality itself but about ego. About whether or not we you see can assert ourselves and Assert ourselves in such a way that maybe We even rebel against God It's about curiosity There's nothing wrong with curiosity but there's something wrong About unhealthy inquisitiveness We talked about this last week in Ephesians The second chapter When Paul spoke about the nature of the Worldly approach to things Which, which expresses itself in willful Desires of the mind That is to understand things Which we have no business delving into It's about worldliness jesus said about the seed the third kind of seed it falls on the ground it then is in the thorns and the thorns then rise up and they choke that word and what did he say it's because you have desires for other things other things that are not godly things it has to do with sinful pursuits last week again in ephesians paul talks about the willful desires of the flesh it has to do with arrogance It has to do with the fact that somehow we humans with our itty-bitty minds and our rational approach to things think that we know better than the omniscient, almighty, ever-loving God. There's a biblical response then to these challenges. There's a biblical response to our resistance to making a decision about ultimate matters. And there are two passages that we have listed in the bulletin today that I want to look at very briefly. The first of those is Jesus' claim, Jesus' response to Thomas when Thomas said, how do we know where you're going? Because we don't know the way. And Jesus responded, as you well know, he said to Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He didn't just say, I am a way, I am a truth, and I am a life. The construction there in the Greek grammar is very explicit. By the way, what he was saying was that he was the pathway, the portal, and the access to God. The pathway, he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount about a broad way and a big gate, and then he spoke really about himself when he said, but there is a narrow way. The broad way leads to destruction. The narrow way, and he was speaking about himself, goes through the small gate, I am the way. He is the portal. That is, once you then come down the path, he said, I am the door. I am the one through whom you go. But it's not just a door without a destination. He also said, I am the access. In Ephesians, the second chapter, a little bit later, next week, we're going to look at the passage. It says that we have access to the Father. Once we have gone through the door, we have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. the power of the spirit so he is the way he is the truth the word became flesh and dwelled among us and we beheld his glory even of the father full of what full of grace and truth he said to his disciples follow me and if you follow me you will know the what the truth he said in John 8 and the truth will do what it will set you free. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am also the life. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humanity, John tells us in his prologue. I am the resurrection and the life, he said, outside of Lazarus' tomb. He is the true God and eternal life, we're told in 1 John. So very clearly, the biblical response to this question about is there only one way is very obvious. Yes, there is. It is Jesus Christ. By his claim, by the Son of God, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then Peter's testimony backed this up. When he was standing before the Sanhedrin, when he and John were then dragged before then the religious leaders, and they were told to be quiet, Peter responded, and he said in Acts, the fourth chapter, and there is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given unto men whereby we must be saved. This is is found in the very name of Jesus. At the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, the first chapter, the angel told Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus because why? Because he is the Savior of his people. Forgiveness of sins, we're told in Acts, the 10th chapter. Forgiveness of sins comes only through the name of Jesus Christ. He is Lord who poured himself out took on the form of man and obeyed the Father even to death on a cross. And as a response to that, then the Father has honored him and he has glorified him. He is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he has given him the name that at the pronunciation of that name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And confess that he is Lord So there is no question The biblical response is very exclusive He is the only way And the evidence from scripture is Profound Last week we looked at this And the uniqueness The oneness and the one and onlyness Of the person of Jesus Christ He is the eternal son of God And the word that is made flesh He is The perfect God man Who then made the perfect sacrifice for your and my sin No one else could do that He is the one and only resurrected and glorified Lord Who is at the right hand of God now And the source of our eternal salvation So there's no question he is unique in his person We dealt with that last week But this week what we look at is He is also unique in his works What do we mean by that? Well, first of all, in his teaching, he taught with supreme authority. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his teaching. They were astounded. They were stunned, even the religious leaders. And even today, his teachings affect every culture around the globe. Amazing in his teaching and his authority. Uniquely so. He was unique in the performance of miracles. No historical figure from the beginning of time has performed as many and mighty miracles as Jesus Christ Moses notwithstanding no Moses with he also would not compare to Jesus Christ In John the 10th chapter we are told that he said if you don't believe me believe what believe what I do Believe the works that I perform. Believe the miracles so that you may know and understand this very fact that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. We are one. He was proclaiming his divinity. So he is unique in his performance of miracles and the number and also the fact that he himself was a recipient of the greatest miracle since the creation of the earth and that was his resurrection. He also is unique in his identifying with you and with me. Personally, Jesus experienced everything that we have gone through. The author of Hebrews tells us this. Whatever you've gone through, whatever heartbreak you've experienced, whatever temptation you have encountered, whatever difficulty you have faced, he has as well. For we do not have a great high priest who is untouched by our infirmities, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without what? yet without sin God knows our every thought now this comes from the Old Testament we need to understand this that in the Trinity the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were the authors of the word and when we read something from the Old Testament it speaks to the character of God it also speaks to the character of Jesus Christ himself and we're told in Psalm 139 he identifies with us you know that when I sit down and when I rise up you know me You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path. You look at my laying down, and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. This identifies Christ with us. He knows you. He knows what makes me tick. He knew what I was going to say this morning before I ever said it. He was with me as I prepared this message. He, was, he will be with you when you drive away from this church today. He knows you intimately, and he walks with you, and he talks with you. He is unique in his caring and his suffering. Oh, we empathize with people. We care for people. We may even suffer with people, but he is unique in this respect. He does it for every living soul on the face of this globe, and he has from the beginning of time. He cares and He suffers infinitely. Peter tells us to cast our anxiety upon Him because why? He cares for us. He is one who bears all of our afflictions. Isaiah put it this way when it prophesied about the coming Messiah, the suffering servant. And it said, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face... He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself has borne and our sorrows he has carried. And he continues to do this personally today for eight, almost 8 billion people on this earth. He cares and he suffers as much with the Ukrainian refugee who has lost a brother or a sister. He cares as much for them as he cares for the Russian mother who has gotten a telegram that her son was killed in battle. He cares for every one of his creatures. He suffers for every creature, not just for humans. William Rowe told us last week that his fawn, Rose Fawn, remember, in the forest may die when nobody sees in a forest fire. And so what good does it accomplish? Nobody sees that. Let me tell you this he sees and he cares and he loves. He sees that deer when it dies. He cares for every one of his creatures. How do I know that? Because Jesus said to his disciples, Are not two sparrows a sold a soul for a single penny? And yet not one of them falls to the earth. What is that in a euphemism for? Not one of them dies apart from the Father. His eyes. sparrow, and I know that he's watching me. He cares infinitely. He forgives. The scribes were right when they looked at, at Jesus and said, nobody can forgive sin except God. The fact is, he is God-man, and he has the authority to do so because he is God, but also because he died for those sins. He gave himself for our sins. He can forgive them, and he forgave those at the foot of the cross who were even then putting him to death. His forgiveness then comes through His name only. Forgiveness of sin can come only through God, and it comes through the name of Jesus Christ. When we pray for the forgiveness of our sins, to whom do we pray? We pray to our Lord who makes intercession with the Father. He is unique in what He knows and does. He knows the Father's will, and He does it. He searches the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us. And He watches the Father, and He does what the Father does, and He obeys the Father perfectly, and yet He accomplishes the Father's will. And what is the Father's will? The Father's will is that everyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ will have eternal life. He is unique in as much as He saves. He is the perfect sacrifice, the God-man sacrifice that paid for your sin and my sin. And only His death on the cross can put sin to death. And He did it. He puts sin to death so that it no longer has any power over you and me, and it cannot then consign us to hell if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And by putting sin to death, He reversed the curse upon creation. He is unique in as much as He redeems. Well, you said, Jim, just a moment ago He saves, but redemption is bigger than salvation. His redemption goes beyond. Just personal salvation. As great as that is, His redemption is for all creation. We asked the question about evil and suffering a couple of weeks ago. He is the answer to evil and suffering. He has the answer. Because all of creation groans even now because it has fallen. All of creation groans because of the sin that has been committed. And someday He is going to reverse that. Romans tells us that creation groans and it awaits the redemption of the sons of God. And it's coming, it's coming. Someday He's coming back and He's going to do what? He is going to make everything new. There is going to be a new earth and a new heaven. He is going to redeem it all. And only He can do it. Only He can intercede. He is authorized to intercede because He is the only one who is sinless. He has an authority to intercede because He is the only one that is at the right hand of God in His throne. In heaven. And he continues to do that. He continues to make intercession this morning when we prayed our prayer of confession. Who was it that was listening? The Holy Spirit communicated that to Jesus Christ and he communicates our prayers to the Father. He is unique in his teaching, he is unique in his miracles, he is unique in identifying with us, he is unique in suffering infinitely, he is unique in forgiving. He is unique in knowing and doing the will of his Father, God. He is unique in saving and redeeming and interceding. The biblical evidence is profound and full. He is unique. He is the one and only who saves, and he is the one and only who answers all of life's ultimate questions. The evidence goes beyond Scripture, friends. When you compare him with any other religious leader, there is no comparison, even with Moses. Moses gave the law, but Jesus brought grace and truth. Moses fed his people with manna, and they died in the desert, but Jesus gives the bread of life. Jesus fulfilled the law that Moses gave completely. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant that goes beyond the covenant that was written on stone, and he's written it on hearts of flesh. Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert and he saved the people of Israel. Jesus Christ was lifted up on a cross and he offers salvation to all of humanity. Jesus' miracles were manifold many times greater than those of Moses. And the most powerful miracle that has occurred since creation, as I said a moment ago, came through the person of Jesus Christ as a resurrection. Moses cannot hold a candle to Jesus Christ. Muhammad Muhammad was a man and a prophet. Jesus fulfilled prophecy by becoming the God man. Muhammad never performed a sing- single uh, miracle. Jesus was died. Jesus died and was resurrected. Muhammad simply died in 632 AD. Jesus gives salvation by grace. Muhammad pre- preaches a gospel of works. Salvation is certain through Jesus Christ. If we believe in Him as Lord and Savior, we are certain that we have a place in heaven. Mohammed never gave that promise. There is no certainty of hope in the Muslim faith, for sure. Jesus died voluntarily without a fight. He said, if you want to fight... I could have all of my disciples, and we could fight you, but I'm not going to. He died voluntarily. Moses and Muhammad spent the last ten years of his life fighting to advance his cause. Jesus was sinless. Muhammad robbed caravans outside of the capital city, and he had more wives than were allowed by Muslim law. Muhammad holds no candle to Jesus Christ. Hindu teachers have scriptures that are so complicated and difficult to understand that you must have a guru to help you understand them. Jesus' teachings are very clear and simple for salvation to anyone who can hear and read the gospel. Hinduism is pantheistic. The hope is that they can somehow be absorbed into the cosmic unity. There is no distinction between God and man in Hinduism and the Christian faith. God is supernatural. He is over all the forces and powers of this earth, and there is a distinction between creator and creation. Hinduism has much polytheism in it that is based on superstition, occult practices, legends of false gods, and demon worships. We believe in a supernatural God who is the one true God, sovereign over all pretended spiritual powers. In Hinduism, they leave their suffering to their destiny, Christ said to love your neighbor. Love your neighbor like the Samaritan so that you are willing then to go to the person that you don't like, but he's your neighbor and you take care of him. Love your neighbor in such a way that you take care of the least of these. In Hinduism salvation is uncertain. It is an endless struggle of works through cycles of reincarnation. In Christianity we are saved by one act of God's grace and through our believing in Jesus Christ. In Hinduism The goal beyond death is to empty oneself into a cosmic, impersonal kind of consciousness. In Christianity, we are given the promise that we can have a person we will have a personal presence with God where we live eternally and we praise Him. In Buddhism, Siddhartha Gautama, we don't know when he lived, we don't know when he died. It may have been the 6th century, it may have been the 5th century, it may have been the early 4th century. Somewhere, we're not sure, Nepal or India, and his life is based on legends. We know accurately from the scriptural evidence when Jesus was born and where, and we have an accurate account of his life. In Buddhism, religion is essentially atheistic. There is no personal God. It offers only hopeless despair and suffering in this life. Jesus offered abundant life if we believe in him. In Buddhism, life ends in the eradication of personal identity into oblivion, that is, non-existence. Jesus offers life eternal with him in God's presence. The Buddhas point the way. That's the general way. But each one of you, they would say, must then find how then to accomplish this eventual merging into oblivion. Each person, you see, has his own way. And as we have heard this morning, the Scripture says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he walks with us every day to help us make those decisions. The historical and cultural impact of Jesus makes him clearly unique. H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds author, put it this way, I'm an historian. I'm not a believer. He confessed that up front. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Now, I don't believe it because H.G. Wells said it. I believe it because the Bible says it. But isn't it interesting that even someone like Wells would say that? We look at the influence of his teachings, the golden rule. And you might say, well, but the golden rule you find in just about every one of the religions. Well, that's the point, folks. What did we say at the very beginning? If there is any truth in any religion and any philosophy, it then finds its ultimate source in, in where? In God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus articulated that golden rule, and it has been influential around the globe to bring ethics to society. He is the author of the commandments that Moses gave, and then he reduced them to the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor, and it's the basis of our justice system. He invited the children to come to him, and his teachings about children were the basis for forming the first orphanages in Western society. The colleges and the university systems that we have in the West are based on cathedral and monastic schools that were designed to teach those principles of Christianity. Compassion for the poor and the diseased And Christianity was the basis for forming the first hospitals out of monasteries. The principle of humility was not a value in ancient society It was denigrated, but because of Jesus' humility and his teaching it as a value and because of his crucifixion, it overturned the old emphasis on pride. Forgiveness and restoration instead of triumphalism and vengeance are the basis of our justice system today because of Christ. Humanitarian reform, equality and dignity before God because Jesus valued women and he valued slaves and he valued children. His influence around the globe has been profound. Literacy in most Western countries is because of the influence of the Bible. Luther's Bible, more than any other thing, unified the German language, and I would suggest to you that the King James Version did the same thing for the English language. And Noah Webster put it this way the language, the author of the dictionary, or one of the dictionaries, said, the language of the Bible has no considerable influence in forming and preserving our national American language. The influence on literacy. The influence on science. The roots of the modern scientific re- revolution that began in the 16th century can be traced back then to the cathedral schools and the monastic schools of the 11th century based on a Christian emphasis on education. Jesus' influence in culture and society outside of what we know from Scripture. Scripture is so profound to describe him as unique. And then finally, his uniqueness is found in logic. Most of you are familiar with the argument by G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. We have a choice to make when we look at Jesus Christ. Is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? As you move down the pathway of life, you may have many choices to make. But as your days get shorter, and your life gets longer, each one of us has a choice to make. We must make this decision about Jesus Christ. Ken Boa and Robert Boehm give five alternatives. Is he merely a legend? Are the biblical accounts, in fact, not true? If one chooses that that is their option, then Jesus is not the answer. Is he a teacher, just a good teacher, as the liberal theologians have said? Are Jesus' claims simply mystical claims, but they're not literal and they're not true? If one opts for that, then Jesus may not be for you. Or is he a liar? Did Jesus intentionally deceive his followers? That goes against every bit of his teaching, but if you believe that, then maybe Jesus is not for you. Or is he a lunatic? Were Jesus' claims well-intentioned? Did he intend to save his people? But he was misguided and he ended up dead on a cross and there was no resurrection. If you believe that, you believe that he was a lunatic. Maybe Jesus is not for you. But there is another option. And it's the one and only way that is proclaimed by Scripture. He is Lord. The biblical accounts are trustworthy. And Jesus' claims are true. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I opt for that option. How about you? And then there comes the evidence from the personal life. Jesus Christ changes lives those who believe in him, it's not just a mental thing. But when we surrender to Jesus Christ this morning, if if you are weighing the options this morning out there, or online, and you feel something tugging at your heart, you feel a little unsettled with one of the other options that you have chosen because Jesus is not for you, and you feel like you may be persuaded that he is the way, the truth, and the life, it's not just a mental thing. He asks you to do this, to give yourself to him. That ego that we talked about, that rational arrogance that we talked about, let him put it to death. Die to self. Take up the cross of Jesus Christ and follow him. That's what he said to his disciples. It's a hard way. It's not an easy way, but I'll walk with you every step of the way. But it's not a hopeless way. I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself so that where I am, you may be also. And that is the promise. And then what happens if you do that this morning, if you surrender yourself to Jesus Christ and you ask for forgiveness of sin, he promises that he will wash you clean and white as snow. He will rid you of your sin, forgive you of your sin, for which he paid. And then his Holy Spirit will come and dwell within you. And he will walk with you every step of the way. And here is the evidence. The evidence that any kind of apologetic opponent opponent to your belief cannot withstand. It is evidence that is irrefutable. Your life will be changed. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creature. You see, the old things have passed away. And the new has come. You have been made anew. And friends, that argument is irrefutable. All of the other stuff that I have said this morning, people can argue with rationally and philosophically and pit one religion against the other. But for you, the irrefutable evidence, as you will know the presence of the Holy Spirit, his spirit will bear witness to your spirit that you are a child of God. Nothing can refute what Christ is about to do for you if you choose to follow him as the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you gave your only begotten son that whoever, man, woman, child, in the Ukraine or Russia, America, Romania, wherever, anywhere in any spot around this globe, you love them and you care for them and your son jesus christ died for them and if they will believe in your son jesus christ and accept him as lord and savior of their life they might have eternal life we pray this in your name amen
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the gamble street baptist church sermon podcast If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals, to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.